ascend to the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in this holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Let's bow our hearts and heads and sign of preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 344, 344. It's a new tune, so she'll play through it first. call upon you, Spirit of God, to the mercies of Christ Jesus, that we would be here in your presence, enabled by your grace, Lord, to hear your word, to sing praises before you, Lord, to participate with all that we have, Lord, and cast aside distractions. We pray these things in your name alone. Amen. You may be seated. We have Psalm 139b, 139b. So we will sing one through five.
do indeed come before you, God, knowing that you have pleasure in us through the blood of Christ Jesus, Lord, that we are your saints, and although we don't feel that way, and we wonder, Lord, and marvel how you have indeed continued to delight in us, God, we ask that we would be encouraged therein, as we were this morning in the Lord's Supper and this evening through the preaching of your word, God, and the exhortation of who you are, God, and our callings in life, and that we are indeed empowered by your Spirit so that we can live for righteousness. We pray and ask God Almighty above that we who are your people would continue to give thanks before you, Lord, in thought, word, and deed throughout the week, Lord, not only on Sunday and not only on the Lord's Supper, uh, but whenever the opportunity arises, God, and we're reminded of the wonderful many blessings you've given us, Lord, uh, for the material blessings to be sure, God, the food and the shelter and the clothing and the variety of food, Lord, and the variety of clothing and the ability, Lord, even uh, with a weak economy and uh, growing inflation, Lord, that we can still get a number of things on sale for a good price. And we can have a, the, an enjoyment, Lord, that you've blessed us here, especially in the West. But above all, God, get to give thanks, to have a heart of gratitude towards you in giving us Christ Jesus, giving us all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places as we read in Ephesians 1, God above. And so, God, we also give thanks to you again this evening. We pray in particular, Lord, for those who are mourning. We pray for Ramona, God, who has just only been in her short life a Christian for a very short time, Lord. We have not known them very long, yet they are there in our hearts, Lord. We ask that you would comfort her, that you would encourage her, that you would strengthen her, that you would, uh, Lord, draw her to us, and especially to you, we pray. And that we would mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, God. To be thankful, Lord, for many of us who have good jobs, good families, and good blessings from you, Lord. Be thankful for such things, Lord, and not to have a root of bitterness in our hearts. Help us, we pray, to grow as the body of Christ, to take care of one another, to help one another, to mourn with one another, to rejoice with one another, to admonish one another, and, Lord, to encourage one another as well. We ask, God, that you would be with the persecuted church. We pray for our brothers and sisters, their families and their children, Lord, in parts of Africa and the Middle East and Asia and China in particular, Lord, North Korea, who are hidden and hiding God and fleeing from wicked oppression, from those who hate God and hate the people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you protect them, God, we pray. We thank the Lord for our little influence in the OPC and Africa and other places, Lord, uh, for Middle East Reform Fellowship, God, and in, in particular, there in the Mediterranean and in Cyprus, for their influence and ability to help to some extent, God, certainly to preach, encourage, and give them the word of truth. We pray, Lord, you continue to give them wisdom, give them access to your word, give them access, Lord, to the preaching. Raise up men to lead those churches, to protect those churches, Lord, not just spiritually, but even physically, God. And so, Lord, our hearts go out to the persecuted church across the world. We pray, God, that they would be vindicated as you have promised in your word. We pray for our calling this week, Lord, and every day, as husbands and wives, as children, as workers, as owners and bosses, Lord, as citizens of this nation, God above, we would do our calling unto you. To do it well, Lord, to work hard. Yes, we work for our boss. Yes, we work for school. Yes, we work for our parents, Lord, but ultimately we work for you, Jesus Christ, God above. And, uh, these sermons, Lord, through Peter here, especially in chapter 2, encourage us to do the right thing, even when we are punished for doing the right thing. So, God above, may we be encouraged, Lord, that you are with us, that you are blessing us through Jesus Christ, that you are strengthening us, and that we can 
and we shall, Lord, overcome. In the name of the Lord we pray. Amen. We now have our tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy This evening, God above, we are grateful again to be given these tithes and offerings to you, Lord above. Give us wisdom as a church in using them aright, God, and may they be multiplied for your kingdom's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, verses 24 and 25, although uh, part of the prior verses before it in the context uh, has relevant truth I wish to drill into and unpack. First Peter 2, 24 and 25, let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let us pray. <clears throat> With these words, God above, that you have given us through the mouth of Peter, we ask, Lord, that we be encouraged and directed again to live for righteousness and to know that suffering for your namesake is living for righteousness as well, that we would persevere. In your name alone we pray. Amen. So, thus far, Peter has written... Many good and thought-provoking truths. So I want to dig into one of these truths here in this latter section of the verses about servants or workers of businesses. And these verses in particular are interesting as they are mentioned almost in passing as though it was so obvious. If you recall, Peter, as I said, is explaining the call to submit to masters, even to mean ones, when there is no other recourse. In such cases, we are to imitate Jesus in submitting to punishment for doing the right thing, who, when he was reviled, that is, Jesus Christ, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So you see the contrast there. He's saying to the servants, don't threaten your masters, don't revile your masters. 
but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That is, God will vindicate you for doing the right thing even though your boss will not. But Peter doesn't leave the thought there unfinished. He continues there into verse 24 and 25. Who himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So he moves from our imitating Christ, this is what Christ did, therefore this is what you should do, to Christ changing us. His suffering we follow in our suffering, but Christ also bearing our sins and the consequences of our sins brings us to a new life. That is, that we may live for righteousness. That we might live for righteousness. That is the call of sanctification. That we are to be a holy people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So here we have the first point, died to sins in his description here. Verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. This is the work of Christ. It's objective. It's outside of us. It's what he has done for his people, not what we have done for ourselves. To what end? Well, to save us, yes. But what does salvation entail? It entails many things. And here we see in particular that it entails that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. He died that we might live. Live to what end? For our own selfish gain? For our own entertainment? No, that we might live for righteousness. A godly life. As Jesus lived a godly life. And he describes that living first with a description of what we are. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. So the thrust, although, is living for righteousness He's saying, you know, by the way, you also died to sins. And this is connected to the idea of living for righteousness. What does he mean that we died to sins? That Christ bore our sins in his own body, having died to sins, that we might live for righteousness' sake. Christ died for our sins, and we are dead to our sins insofar as we are separated from the power of sin. A metaphor here of death is the radical break with the world of sin. Sin of all types, yes. Of all degrees, yes. And certainly in our sanctification, some sins and the power therein is stronger than others, and yet at the end of the day, they too shall pass away. And how, in particular, are we dead through Christ Jesus dying for sins? We have death from the condemnation of sin. We have death from the condemnation of sin, of the law in particular. That is, the law condemns those who break the law. We understand this. So we're careful not to break the law of man, let alone the law of God. God's law brings condemnation to sinners. Paul's entire argument in Romans is based upon that. The first opening chapters, parts of 1 and chapter 2 and into 3. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are condemned by what? The law of God. The law is righteous, holy, just, and pure. We are not. We have broken it. And we are therefore condemned and found guilty by the law. Yet, through Christ Jesus, who bore our sins, we have died through Him to sins themselves by His work. We have died to the condemnation of sin. It brings no more condemnation to us, brothers and sisters. We are no longer condemned by the law. 
How can that be? I'm a sinner. Yes, but Christ Jesus died for your sins. He took the condemnation is the implication here. Also, not just the condemnation of sin, but the particular guilt that we have upon us for that sin. The guilt upon our conscience is now wiped away. We're no longer considered guilty, therefore we're no longer condemned before the courts in heaven above. Death is also a way of describing the influence of sin being undercut, the power therein, as I mentioned before. Unbelievers are in complete bondage to sin. and thought, word, and deed, they enjoy sin. They may redefine the word sin and call it righteousness, as we are seeing more and more in American society. When they see us do the right thing, they think we're crazy doing the wrong thing. They call good evil, evil good. And so therefore they, what, assuage and calm their guilty conscience. They feel good about themselves, but not really. We know it's always there under the surface, pushing back against them. So sin influences them, subdues them, conquers them. It's killing them daily. But on the flip side, we who have died in Christ Jesus are dead to sin, dead to the influence of sin. Sin itself is no longer a complete bondage upon us, but tries to grab us a little, our leg here, our arm there, kind of like the living dead out of the ground, trying to grab you and pull you down. But you're no longer living under the ground and with the dead in the place of the abode of the dead, Sheol. Rather, resurrected in Christ. They, that is, the world, the flesh, and the devil try to call you back to sin, to be sure, but the influence has been greatly reduced, brothers and sisters, in a way we've not thought about before. And I'll explain it this way. Because I know you can all think of, well, I've got this sin. And I've been struggling with this sin for 25 stinking years. And yet here you are. Have you denounced your baptism? No. you denounced Jesus? No. you hate the people of God? No. Okay. (laughs) There you go. Didn't say all the sins disappear, that the influence is completely eradicated. The metaphor of death, of course, is the beginning of death, that we are dying to sin daily. You read that elsewhere. Mortification is the word of the flesh. But there's a real break when you're born again. Unbelievers have those sins for 25 years, plus they hate the people of God, plus they don't care about baptism, plus they're God. That's all the difference in the world. You have changed, brothers and sisters. The church of God has changed. Although the world wants to shove your sins in your face, and so does Satan, we have a greater judge, and that is our Father through Christ Jesus. And Jesus has borne our sins, having died to sins, died to our sins. And the consequences of sin, we are dead not only to the, the guilt, the condemnation, the influence, and the consequence of sins. And again, you, <laughs> well... I still feel like I have consequences of sin. I was a gambler, so I gambled all my money, and my children have no inheritance. And so there's a consequence there. Yes, that's true. That's certainly true. But now that consequence is not a consequence of condemnation, but a consequence of discipline now. Because what do we hear about this morning? Your God is your Father. And when your Father gives you consequences, that's different when the judge gives you consequences. Which one would you rather have? Your Father any day. You'd be fling. I don't want the judge. Stay away from me, judge. But your father judging you, that's a good thing. It hurts, but you know in the long run it's for your good, brothers and sisters. So those consequences have been transformed, and they're there. I call them natural consequences, morally natural consequences. You don't become a Christian, all of a sudden all your debt's gone. <laughs> right? No, the consequences are there, but other consequences are 
subdue it and cut back. For example, you may have a debt problem, you have a money problem, but now you're a member of the church of God, and the church is here to help you financially. So the consequences are undercut. They're subdued a little bit. And even morally that's the case, as the Spirit works through you and helps you grow, even with little punishment, but he subdues you and subdues the sin and the consequences of sin to some degree, and ultimately on the fullness when Christ Jesus returns. And there is no more sin. No more consequences of sin. So those are the ways in which, through Christ Jesus, he who died for our sins and died to sins, we died to sin through him, that we might live for righteousness. Another way of describing this is that we are dead to our past. Past sins no longer own you, brothers and sisters. You carry on a life following Jesus, being born again. Your sins need not hold you down like a ton of bricks on your back, like, <clears throat> but rather instead we are to move forward in the Christian life. As he gives us motivation here to obey. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Christ is our sacrifice who took our sins in punishment for us. That we, having died to sins, died to sins as the whole world behind us. It's a different time. We are born again. We don't need to live in the past anymore. And this is a strong motivation that we might live for righteousness because we are indeed, we are indeed dead to sin. The beginning of that death, to be sure, it's not fully complete yet. The word we use is consummated, full completion. But it's a clear rupture. The world sees it. You see it in your life. It begins with the cross. And so we have a motivation in a negative fashion, as it were, here, being unshackled from the chains of sin, free from the guilt and condemnation of the law, we are now left free from these things that held us back to carry on to live what a life of righteousness, the second point. And we who have died to sins through the blood of Christ Jesus and his work for us might live for righteousness. This is the goal of the Christian life. The central idea is in this sentence, being born again is not about wiping away the old sins only. Being a Christian is not about feeling good. It's not about getting rid of sin only. But also a positive goal of having a righteous and holy life. A one that follows Jesus and does the right thing even when you are punished for it. Which is what we have in this context, right? The servant is doing the right thing. The master punishes him anyway. You can imagine the Christian's like, well, what's the point of following Jesus? And he's told, this, look, this is what exactly happened with Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He did absolutely nothing wrong. And yet he was beaten, he did not revile, he was cursed, and he did not beat them back, but submitted. So it's a positive direction that we have here. Dead, therefore away from sin, and toward and living to or for righteousness. It's a new direction in life. We are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's another way of describing that, and that includes living for righteousness. If you want to enjoy God forever, what does that mean? Psalm 15, who can abide in the presence of the Lord? But He, uh, the holy man who walks uprightly and follows God. And we can. We can have the first fruits of walking uprightly, brothers and sisters. I know it doesn't feel that way, but the Bible tells us otherwise. He's encouraging them and telling them, you can do it. And in fact, I as we read elsewhere in Peter, they have done it. 
And he's speaking of, of the positive. This is who you are. You are believers. You have overcome sin. You have been dead. You have died to sins, having died to sins. Not you will eventually die to sins, but having died to sins. So what is righteousness? Simply put, it's doing the right thing. Specifically, what? Well, I think this church knows. Obeying the law of God. In thought, in word, and deed. That's a tall, tall order, to be sure. And it is. It feels impossible. But again, Peter's telling us it's not impossible. It says, since you have indeed died to sin, Paul says that elsewhere in Romans, you can live to righteousness. You can live to obedience. You can live to submission to God's Word and to, to the authorities around you. As we see in these verses, right? We have chapter 3, talking about submission. And here, servants who should submit to their masters. And before then, citizens of nations who should, who should submit to the magistrate, the kings, and the emperors. <clears throat> and so, that is a life of righteousness. Obeying the law of God. Avoiding sin. Embracing obedience, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, as we know. This is the call of all Christians. To follow Jesus no matter what. Jesus did the right thing, did he not? Did he not obey the Ten Commandments? Did he come to earth to break them and do what he felt like? No, he says, I come to do my Father's will. And he did his Father's will. And he said, you know, when I'm feeding people on the Lord's Day, I'm not breaking my Father's will. You guys are. You Pharisees have added to the law of the Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, what was never there. And I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I'm telling you, that's not what it ever meant. Even in that case, God was very clear. The Son was very clear. I am doing what God wanted you to do, or not doing, and I'm going to do it perfectly in thought, word, and deed. And so we are following, therefore, Jesus, who we are renewed in His image, to be like Him, to be holy. To live for righteousness is the description of living a holy life. And therefore, the Ten Commandments. To do the right thing, to avoid the bad things, to ignore Satan and lies, and to embrace the truth. But contextually, although this could be seen as a broader language, to live for righteousness, all kinds of obedience, all kinds of ways in which you do the right thing, you do right to your neighbor, you do right to your church. Contextually, it comes from the idea of righteousness as in being punished for doing the right thing. You do the right thing, your boss buffets you, smacks you around anyway. I hope that doesn't happen to you guys at work. If it does, you need to leave. But if you're bad mouth, they lied about you, you don't get your promotion, even though you did the right thing. You're doing the right thing. You're living for righteousness. They don't go about the consequences, right? Consequences are, bad things happened to me. I lost my job. They lied about me. And there's nothing I can do about it. I, I'm, I can't vindicate myself. And God's like, that's living for righteousness. That's doing the right thing regardless. And the right thing in that case, of course, is not to lie about your boss because he lied about you, not to revile him because he reviled you, and not to threaten because he threatened you. Rather, to submit and to commit yourself to him who judges righteousness. And it's hard. You may not get full justice this side of eternity, but it will happen. But meanwhile, do the right thing. And so contextually, it's submitting to punishment 
for doing the right thing anyways. That is a righteous way of living. That is living for righteousness. It is a righteous thing to suffer for doing good. If the suffering comes upon you, not that you should seek out suffering, obviously. It's not enjoyable. Nevertheless, there it is. We are forced upon us by dint of circumstance, and then we must just simply do, the, do it anyway. And it's hard. The suffering of Christ we see here, uh, by his stripes we are healed. He says here that we might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed kind of brings it in. In my translation, uh, you have, I always forget to call it, the name of it, the dash or the hyphen, the horizontal line. <clears throat> Uh, there where he's emphasizing the work of Christ that he mentioned at the beginning of verse 24, who himself bore our sins, by whose stripes you were healed. Same idea uh, there. Obviously, when he says by his stripes we are healed, it's a metaphor for redemption. Not as though the literal beating of Christ, which actually happened, of course, brings about the healing of my body. Christ, and there are charismatics who talk this way. They will say, Jesus got beating. Jesus took all the sicknesses of the world upon him. In fact, I just read that recently uh, from a professional who's, who gave a conference about abuse. She, she was saying that Christ literally took all the bad things in this world upon, from everybody, upon himself. It was the weirdest thing to read. Sex trafficking, everything. He took everything upon himself. I'm like, what? What? I think they're getting very emotional to understand what they're talking about. That's not what this is talking about. It's that he suffered for our sins. He didn't take pneumonia upon himself. He didn't take uh, other people's activities uh, upon himself that way, uh, but rather stood in our stead and took the punishment. That we are purged from sin by Christ's stripes. His punishment, in other words, stripes, and the beating he took, his shorthand, for all that he took upon himself in this world. The punishment he did for doing good, for following the Father's will. And that punishment, the stripes, he focuses on the stripes as a particular of the broader idea of all the suffering of Christ, is used to heal us from sin, healing us, purifying us from sin, to save us. It crushes pride, in other words, suffering. Christ suffered. He got beaten, and we also suffer, although we may not be beaten, although a servant may be beaten. Context here are slaves. They actually may have been beaten. So God is using their suffering to heal them of their sins. That is, they learn through the punishment to crush their pride that we're not in control, to build up our patience, to teach us to wait, to reinforce character by giving us the needed experience to do the right thing regardless if we are rewarded or not. Or in this case, not just not rewarded, but rewarded negatively, <laughs> getting, given a bad thing. And we need this teaching, brothers and sisters, in America. The way I like to say, pastors I think often like to say, you know, we're soft in America, we had it so well. And that's, I want it well. It's not like I want punishment. Uh, but more and more we are seeing bad things happen in the Christians. We're shut out and we're being hated and reviled and the like. We need to be reminded it may not go our way. We may suffer, even if it's just financial suffering as opposed to physical suffering. Uh, and God tells us, look, you are being healed through this suffering. The son uh, was beaten, whose stripes you were healed. And although you're not healed by some kind of miraculous attachment to his stripes as such, that he's mixing a bunch of ideas here and metaphors in a compact man manner, I think, that Christ suffered, you're going to suffer, 
Now, suffering is a form of healing so far as it teaches you to become more like Jesus, to heal you from your pride, for example. <clears throat> now we have, thirdly, the last verse, 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We return to the fold. We return to the fold. A reminder that life has changed for the servants. Life has changed for the citizens. That is, the Christians here in verses 13 and following, when he encourages them to submit, submit, and obey, and not be a troublemaker. Why? Remind you again, I beg you as sojourners, verse 11, abstain from flesh and lust, which war against the soul, which would be, for example, reviling in return, not turning the other cheek is the implication, threatening when you are suffering, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works glorify God. That's the context of all this call of submission. Remember that. Because they are in a difficult position, of course, back then of having no appeal court like we do. I'm not saying they'll have appellate courts. I mentioned this before. They've they got nothing. So if you've got nothing, you just suffer in silence, frankly. Nothing more you can do. Well, life has changed for these Christians, for these pagans who became Christians, these unbelievers who became Christians, who threw away their false gods. We used to be wandering sheep. That's a well-known figure in the Bible, of course. That is, in my mind, when I read about sheep, or like sheep gone astray, a wandering sheep, uh, they are confused, rebellious, making excuses about our sins, insisting upon going our own way, whatever it is. That's what was going on before Jesus called us by the Holy Spirit. We do not live for righteousness, so the contrast, of course, would be sheep going astray are sheep who are not living for righteousness, not following God, not living for Him, but rather living for the moment, living for pleasure of the hour, living for fame, living for money, living for prestige, or something, anything and everything besides God and righteousness. But our past is behind us. It says, you were like sheep. This is gone. But the Spirit, by implication, has come upon you, You've born again, and you've been drawn to God through Christ Jesus, and we have come to Him who is our shepherd and overseer of our soul. He who will protect us, and I think perhaps even by implication, as we saw in verse 23, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously, right? God will vindicate you, and so the Son will as well, because He's the shepherd and overseer. He will protect His sheep. He will vindicate His sheep. Keep doing the right thing, even if you get punished for it. Shepherd of your soul, shepherd and overseer of your soul, two coordinated ideas. So the idea of shepherd is one who leads, protects, and provides, obviously. Leading and ruling tells us how to live. Not just by example, he actually tells you this is what you must do, and it's not a request. What's that called? Ruling. Commanding. Regeneration, of course. The shepherd gives, gives us regeneration by his spirit, and we have new desires and new thoughts. We have new fruit of the Spirit and preservation of our soul. This is because our shepherd, Jesus Christ, shepherds our soul, watches over us and gives us fruit of the Spirit, preserves our soul, and provides for us and protects us from the devil. We are in his sheepfold, right? Behind the fence. Christ is the gate. We go through Christ to get to the kingdom of God, to get to the place of protection for our soul. And to some extent, our body, of course, although it is his design often that our bodies still uh, have many difficulties to teach us humility. So that's a shepherd. 
understand the word shepherd. Now we have an overseer. These are obviously coordinated words. It's another, another way of describing what a shepherd is. The translation I have here is overseer. I don't know what other translations you all have. Bishop may be one of them. Episcopos. Have you heard of that word? Right? Where do we get the word bishop? Get that from the Greek. Jesus is our shepherd and our bishop. Isn't that interesting? I always thought it was interesting to learn that the offices of the church, you have deacons, you have presbyters and ruling elders, you have pastors, bishops, all these titles, Christ has every single title. He's the great deacon, the great servant of the church. He's the great bishop. He's the great pastor. He's the great minister. He's the great presbyter. All these offices. So all, all those offices, in other words, are derived from Jesus, depend upon Jesus, and should uh, therefore what? Follow his rule and obey, uh, obey his requirements of what those offices are. You don't make these offices up willy-nilly. You don't make up the requirements and do what you feel like. Hey, I'm, I've been deputized and do what I want. No, that's exactly right. You're a deputy, and a deputy follows the sheriff. We've got to follow Jesus as church officers. So Jesus is the great church officer, leading the church, the head of the church, the shepherd, who leads, protects, provides, and a bishop or overseer who, as the word we translate here, oversees. Not Oh, that's kind of interesting. What are the sheep doing today? But obviously in a protective manner, in a guarding manner, in a personal manner, as we heard this morning, he provides and protects, and he's personally there and with you. And a guardian. The shepherd also guards as well and leads us. Leads our souls from temptation and the devil. And he does this, again, not in a vacuum or the naked soul is the language I should have used in Sunday school class, but Christ as found in the Word of God. You need to read the Bible. You need to hear the Bible preached. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. The biblical truths are there to protect us. He shepherds and oversees us through his Word. And through the church as well, right? He gave us the church. Where does baptism come in? You've got to be baptized into the body of Christ, into the church. So he designed all of this here together to help oversee, to help shepherd us as sheep that were gone astray. He gives us the body of Christ. He gives us baptism. He gives us preaching. He gives us the word of God to lead and instruct and protect us and to watch over us. In fact, this is why he gave us the book of Peter. Part of the Bible. <laughs> he gave us Peter and the apostle leading and instructing people. They could have said, where's Jesus? Why don't I have you know, Jesus and me? It's the American religion often. Well, you, you can have Jesus, obviously you can be saved, but he doesn't do it in a vacuum. He gives you the apostles in the Bible. He gives you the Bible. He gives you pastors. He gives you baptism and things like that to help you grow and to watch over you. And our shepherd, by implication, leads us as he's the overseer of your soul, leads us into a life of righteousness. As we read in Psalm 23, that lead us into green pastures of restful righteousness. This is a picture of peace and tranquil waters and no more sin upon this world and therefore in heaven, ultimately. And Christ is our shepherd who will fulfill Psalm 23 for us forever and ever. This is our comfort when we are faced with the hard task of submitting to punishment for doing good, brothers and sisters. Our bishop will protect our soul, and our shepherd shall vindicate us at the last day. Let us pray. We thank you, God, above, for these words of encouragement. And a reminder again, 
in a world that calls good evil, evil good, that we are called to live for righteousness as defined by your law. Help us, Lord, to learn such and to embrace you, Lord, and to know that you still cover our sins and that you love us and protect us and will vindicate us. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 397, 397. grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.